it is. Winter came I am in. Something serious in the Northeast. I am not okay with it. I'm so yeah, sad. It's um, fine. My house is so cold. <laughs> we're decorating for Christmas this weekend. Oh, fine. Because we have to. You have to. Because yeah. we're the first. So for people who don't know, we do like a, a family Christmas tour mm-hmm. where each Sunday evening we eat at a different person's house so we can see them all decorated. Mm-hmm. But I'm the first week in December. Yeah. But my birthday is Thanksgiving weekend. So I don't want to be decorating on Thanksgiving weekend. Also, did you decide that? Did you pick it? Because do you the want first to week? switch? No, I said I'd do the first week. Are you sure? we're going to decorate anyway. I was okay. like, as long as I don't have to do it <laughs> next weekend, like okay. on my birthday. If I do it right. now, then I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> so it's going to be before Thanksgiving. I'm going to be one of those assholes that has Christmas decorations no. up. But it's just I want to get it out of the way and done. Yeah. Also, I don't think it's a problem to decorate early. We all love Thanksgiving. We know we love it. But, but Thanksgiving's a day and Christmas is a season. Exactly. So, sorry. <laughs> we're not here to talk about Christmas. We're here to talk about history on the rocks with katie and Allie. oh wow almost lost it there yeah. uh this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance but keep in mind we are drinking the entire time and we are not historians yes. <laughs> not at all uh, but before we get into this story, we need to do a little something special because you might not know what our women look like. And, you know, while we're telling their story, you might be like, mm, I just can't quite picture it. Yeah. And the problem is you're busy because you're decorating for Christmas and Thanksgiving. So you have double decorations going on and in your house my birthday right now. And Allie's birthday. So your hands are full. You can't Google. So we're going to describe what they look like. We're going to get a little... <gasps> Physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I'm doing Vera Atkins. I'm really excited. She's been on our list for a really long time. We brought her name up in numerous stories. She is an Eastern European woman of Jewish descent. She has a very square face with regal features. Mm. So, like, she just looks... um, really sophisticated and um she's got this deep red lips and kind of a flat nose on the bridge and you will often see pictures of her in uniform with like her collar done up so tight and an (laughs) actual tie she like looks like a business military hero i think if i'm thinking of the right person she looks like anna gasteyer from snl Okay, she's like the one who usually her hair is pulled back and it's like higher on one side than the other. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's so, so very interestingly pretty. Yeah. Like the famous picture of her. Um, Because she kind of, to me, looks like this woman. I think. If yes, I'm thinking I can of see Vera, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, thinking yeah. of the correct mm-hmm. Vera Adkins. You are. You are. And it's like, it's a certain, there's certain angles of her where she yeah. just looks super cool. Mm-hmm. She also kind of looks like Wallace Simpson a little bit. Oh, I could see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Maybe I'm thinking of Virginia Hall. Maybe. Oh, you know what? I yeah. Think I'm thinking Because Vera Hall. Atkins is, this is like the famous picture of her. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm thinking of Virginia Hall. Another spy who we've already done <laughs> yeah she looks like yes. Anna Gastar. i agree yes i agree <laughs> she looks oh, exactly, exactly like her, like her. That's, yes, that's who i was thinking of okay that's insane so yeah. anyways um so who are you doing and what does she look like i am doing the fictional character jane Eyre. she is described as plain with an elfin look she describes herself as poor obscure plain and little 
Uh, Mr. Rochester once compliments Jane's hazel eyes and hazel hair, but she informs the reader that Mr. Rochester must, was mistaken as her eyes are not hazel. They are, in fact, green. Whoa. <laughs> Don't mix that up. Uh, but yeah, and anytime anyone references her beauty, it's almost like, she has an inner beauty that makes her prettier, you know, but she's always described as like just kind of like plain and like nothing. Oh, like, yeah. Which is interesting. <laughs> oh, Charlotte Bronte. Yeah. <laughs> Get it um, okay. So tell me what I'm drinking. It looks delightful. It looks like it had a lot of the ingredients you would put in a gin martini. Yes, it with is. With a little bit of extras. I'm nervous. <laughs> so as you know, um, Allie and I have been slow on the martini train. Um, I got into the them this summer um but Allie has not quite yet I'm working on it (laughs) I am doing a twist on a pickle martini um and this cocktail is called to air is divine (laughs) really cute really cute so it is two ounces of very cold gin I chose Bombay Sapphire a half an ounce of dry vermouth you want to do a spritz of lemon juice and a half an ounce of pickle brine and then you garnish with dill and a dill pickle. Ooh, Cheers. Cheers. Mm. It's really good. I mean, if you like pickles, this is definitely for you. Oh, yeah. It's very you. pickly. Now, these are also Trader Joe's brand pickles, which I don't like as much as like a classic Vlasic. Yeah. Um, but I was like, why would I go all the way to the store today? just to pick up pickles yeah. when I have plenty of pickles. Well, <laughs> and also it's really funny because like, I love the taste of pickles mm-hmm. and like, I love relish, but I don't love like pickles themselves. Really? Yeah. So it's like, I don't mind pickles. I like yeah. that salty, like flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's mm-hmm. this. This is definitely a little, yeah. And we don't make savory cocktails. No. A lot. And I like it a lot because it, it, the pickle flavor is like cutting the gin, which is what intimidates me so much about yeah. a gin cocktail. Yeah. Um, so this is great. Thank yeah. you. Thank I'm you. excited. <laughs> All right. So what do you know about Jane Eyre? So Jane Eyre is the type of book that really intimidated me. I was mm-hmm. not a good reader. Um, so things like I always associated it with like things like Wuthering Heights. Yep. Obviously her sister wrote that or mm-hmm. Charlotte Bronte's sister. And then I, I struggled with like books by Jane Austen and like mm-hmm. books like that were always hard for me. Yep. But um, I've gotten through pieces of it. I've mm-hmm. watched shows of it. Mm-hmm. So I know it's kind of about a young girl's boarding mm-hmm. school. Um, and I know that her friend dies, mm-hmm. I think, at the school. There's like a lot of mistreatment at the school. But I don't yeah. know a lot about the story. Yeah. I know a lot about the Bronte sisters. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we did an episode on them. But I don't know a lot about Jane Eyre. All right. Perfect. So I had the same experience you did. I wanted so badly to be the type of girl who was like an Austin head. Exactly. I just wanted to be the Rory Gilmore, (laughs) but I, it was just hard for, it's hard for me too. So, um, I had never read Jane Eyre. I bought it a couple years ago, Uh planned to read it, didn't. Um, so this week I really did start reading the actual book. Obviously Mm. it's like 480 pages, so I couldn't read the whole thing. (laughs) Right. But. I was surprised at like, so the way I approached it this week is I never read it. I was like, I'm going to watch a bunch of synopses. Mm -hmm. I'm going to watch what exactly happens in the book. And I'm also going to listen to um, what one of my sources is Vanessa Zoltan's podcast on air because she loves that this is her favorite book. She literally wrote a book called praying with Jane Eyre. She loves it. She dissects it. And 
that also helped me get into the book and the character. So now I'm reading it and I'm getting it more. You understand it because you already know what's going to happen. Because I already know what's going to happen. So I know what to look for. Like I know who the characters are. Because part of my big problem with a lot of these older books is like they just bring people and you're like, who the fuck is that? Like they're just talking. And one of the things that I found out during my research is that this book is interesting because there are 68 characters that talk directly. And some of them are like, like store shopkeepers or like people that like aren't really characters and they don't come back up again no but like people of usually inconsequential important like no importance speak in this book which i thought was interesting that is interesting um yeah on the on-air podcast they had a woman who literally just examines quotes in books like when someone is speaking and like Hmm. how they change over time so this is like a revolutionary book in that so that's pretty cool i mean i do that when i'm getting ready to do like a wikipedia article for mm-hmm. this show i'll watch like a quick synopsis on yeah. youtube first just so when i sit down to read like i know what to expect i know what to expect yeah. yes and also while i because i was also like reading other chapters too while i was trying to read it in order and i was mm. listening to it on a librivox yeah which is a free audiobook you know they do all the books in the public domain mm-hmm. um and i also watched a crash course literature video um by john green and but one of the things that was striking me is that I actually Googled was Jane Eyre the inspiration for A Court of Thorns and Roses Mm. because the relationship between Resand and Feyre is so similar to Mr. Rochester. And like I actually starred some things in the book for me to read to you later because like some of the things are like spot on. Well, like, and you find that like a lot of authors usually loved books yes, like Jane Eyre. You exactly. know what I mean? Like they're very into it. Yeah. So that would make a lot of sense. Like yeah. the faded soulmates that hated each other at first and like she fall in literally love over time. calls him her mate at some oh, point. Oh, shut up. <laughs> shut up. Come on. <laughs> Jane, so. darling. So anyways, um, now let's get into it because I am going to go through the whole story and then just talk about a few cool things that I wanted to analyze. Sure. Um, Okay. But also, just to be clear, I have not read the full book in its entirety. I am not a literature buff and I'm stupid. So like every week, we're big dummies. (laughs) Come along with us on this dummy journey. So Jane Eyre is the main character of the book of the same name written by Charlotte Bronte. The book was published on October 19th, 1847, under her male pen name, Currer Bell, which is the worst name, Currer. I hate it. I know, it. I know. The um, male names they came up with, the awful. sisters are so dumb. Why not Chuck? Yeah, really, instead of <laughs> Acton. Um, the book obviously focuses on a young woman named Jane Eyre, and it's written like an autobiography. It was even published as Jane Eyre, an autobiography, even though it Obviously couldn't be because it was supposedly written by a man with a different name than Jane Eyre. Um, (laughs) So, but it is written in that style, which we'll talk about later about why I think it's important. So when we first meet Jane, she is 10 years old and she is living in a very unhappy home. She is an orphan who was taken in by her uncle who loved her, um, but died soon after he took her in. This left her in the care of her Aunt Reed, who despises her. Jane is a plain young girl who doesn't even have good looks to grant her any favor. 
She has three cousins who live at the house as well, Eliza, Georgiana, and their awful brother, the 14-year-old John Reed. We come to find out that John has been physically and emotionally abusive towards Jane her entire life, and today, when this book begins, is no different. Jane is cast away from the family, and she finds solace in a window seat with deep curtains where she can hide away and read her book. She's enjoying her solitude when John comes looking for her, and when he finds her, he starts just saying terrible things to her about how she's a drain on the household, and these books are all his, and she shouldn't even be here, and, like, he's going to earn like inherit this whole household one day, like, Women whatever. Women shouldn't read. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then he attacks her. He throws the book at her. He pulls her hair. I mean, he attacks her physically so much that her face is bleeding. Like this is a brutal attack. This unfortunately for Jane is normal, but what makes today different is that she defends herself. She tells people it wasn't her fault. He attacked her. She did nothing. And she ends up getting locked away, called a liar in what they called the red room. This is a room where Mr. Reed died years before. Jane sees a beam of light, believes it is her late uncle's ghost, and she screams and faints, just has like this full-blown panic attack. So an apothecary is summoned to treat Jane, and upon meeting her, he suggests that instead of keeping her in the house, Mrs. Reed should send her to school. She agrees, um, but not before uh, telling the head of the school that she's going to send her to, so Mr. Brocklehurst. Um, what an awful, deceitful, lying child Jane is. So she like lays it out for him. She goes, if you want to take her, go ahead. But she goes, this girl's the worst. What a great way to give her a, a fresh start. Yeah, just a, a fresh start. start in a new place for Jane. So Mr. Brocklehurst goes away. He's like, yeah, we'll accept her. I'll send someone for her later Who on. Who came up with that last name? Shut I the don't fuck know. up. Charlotte. So, <laughs> damn it. Jane ends up going to her aunt and kind of freaking out at her she is like if i was a liar i would tell you that i loved you but i don't (laughs) so i would never say that because you are a horrible person (laughs) she goes and if anyone asks me how i was treated i'll tell them all about your abuse and she goes and if anyone asks me how i liked you i'll say the very thought of you makes me sick Ooh, (laughs) violently ill yeah (laughs) Aunt Reed doesn't really know what to say, so she leaves the room, and Jane is packed up and sent away to the Lowood Institution, <laughs> never to return. Where back I don't to this think house. like things get better, right? I know, like, they get way like, worse. This is like a bad story for her. Yes, she's like not having a time. No, <laughs> this school is run by Mr. Brocklehurst, an austere clergyman, and. This school is not the most welcoming place. The girls are all put in drab, thin clothing. Their hair is supposed to be straight and all the same. Like one girl gets screamed at because her hair is curly. And one of the teachers like, I mean, her hair, they're like, they're like, why is her hair curled? And they're like, it just naturally does that. And they're like, well, make it stop. <gasps> like shave her head. She's a curly girl. I know. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? The food is nearly inedible and the building is kept so cold that the water freezes many young girls at the school are sick and they die of typhus and other ailments and tuberculosis but nothing seems to be done to improve the school's conditions because this is not a regular boarding school this is an institution for abandoned young girls aka girls that nobody gives a fuck about 
There are two people that help Jane through these turbulent years. Ms. Temple, a kind teacher who is sympathetic to the girls and even like uses her own money to buy them non-disgusting food every once in a while. Okay, she's the Miss Honeypot. <laughs> she's the Miss Got Honeypot. Got it. Mm-hmm. Got it. And then Helen Burns, an older student who Jane befriends. Helen is often scolded at school, yet doesn't react at all. Even when it's something like her fingernails were dirty, but she literally couldn't clean them because the water was frozen. And Jane is like, why didn't you stand up for yourself? That wasn't your fault. Like, how do you just stand there and take this criticism and just brush past it? And she goes, well, it's my duty to do so. And she says, in my opinion, you know, in my I, th- I think this is super annoying. She goes, Jane, you'll just be happier if you just don't hold grudges against people. It's like, okay, really easy for you, apparently, Helen. Like, my God. Like, Some people are so chill. I can't. So, like, how could you? I can't let anything go. Mm-mm. Not a thing. Mm-mm. I am bitter. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, both of these women help Jane become a better person. But unfortunately, Helen contracts tuberculosis and dies with Jane by her side. Many other children are ill as well, as we talked about. And thankfully, someone finally notices. And the people who donate money to the school to keep it open demand that a sympathetic management committee be established to make sure that the kids are okay. And thankfully, conditions at the school do eventually improve. Yeah, I think we did an episode about somebody who, like, an actress who was cast in Jane Eyre and had to do the dying scene, like, had to be Helen. Mm. I can't remember. It was maybe two seasons ago that it was just, like, they wanted the Jane Eyre role, but the person ended up getting the um, the role of Helen and had to mm. die. And apparently it, like, really helped their career because they were really good at dying. Oh, there you go. I know. But it is a it's dramatic like Sean death Bean, scene. honestly. <laughs> die in every movie you're in. So Jane eventually becomes a teacher at Lowood School, but soon wishes to explore the world outside of Lowood. So she um, seeks employment elsewhere and is eventually hired by a Mrs. Fairfax. Um, She is hired as a governess at Thornfield Hall, teaching a young French girl named Adele. Jane really comes to like it at Thornfield, and she finds Adele a sweet young student. But there are some strange things about this new gig, uh, like the fact that she has never met the master of the house, and she often hears strange noises coming from the attic. (laughs) Mrs. Fairfax brushes it off and says, oh, that's Grace Poole. She's an employee of the house, and she's just a little off. One day while out on a walk, Jane comes across a man who has fallen from his horse, and he's laying on the road with his dog. And, you know, she's trying to help him. And he's like, no, 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 until he learns that she works at Thornfield. And then he becomes interested in her. And he's like, well, what do you think about the house's master, Mr. Rochester? And she's like, I don't know. I've never even fucking met the guy. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, I was just curious, you know. So he gets back on his horse and goes off with his dog. By the time she gets back to Thornfield, because she is walking, mind you, she sees that this she sees the stranger's dog and, of course, discovers that the man on the road was indeed Mr. Rochester himself. <gasps> He's trying to scoop. Mm-hmm. At first, the relationship is a little cold and stiff, and she's kind of suspicious about his frequent absences. Mr. Darcy-esque. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after some time, the two become close and begin to fall in love, even though he is her boss and he is also like 20 years older than her. 
as as men are as they are in victorian <laughs> romance novels as i don't they are understand in like every ro- victorian in fantasy <sighs> novels they're like 700 years yeah. older than that was you another, are like that it's was another insane. thing i found i was like maybe that's also like Hang on, I can understand is so much older. So normal for these immortal men to be falling for like twenty Weird. year olds. They would probably be like, "You're such a dummy." Yeah, like twenty year old me was a fucking idiot. Can you imagine? No. somebody eight hundred years old thinking I was interesting when no, I was twenty. No. no, no, okay, no. So. One night, a fire breaks out in Mr. Rochester's bedroom, but thankfully, Jane rescues him. He blames the fire on old Grace Poole, but then Jane is confused because uh, Jane or Grace remains employed at Thornfield. She's like, why isn't this woman fired yet? She's screaming all the time in the attic. She's setting fires to the bed. Like, who? she's not hanging out with the other servants. She goes, what is wrong with this woman? Is like- she a ghost? <laughs> is she in prison? I don't know. But soon, Mr. Rochester is off again, this time to meet up with a young woman named Blanche Ingram, who he is interested in marrying. Wait, instead of Jane? Doesn't he like Jane? He does like Jane. But, you know, Jane is poor and insignificant and, you know, it's just plain, (laughs) you know, old plain Jane. Um, Jane is kind of bummed about this. And then she starts to feel stupid for even entertaining the idea that Mr. Rochester might love her. Of course, what an idiot. And in the midst of all this, she gets called back to her childhood home because her cousin John has apparently become quite a gambling addict and he has accrued a lot of uh, debts and he used all the family money and then committed suicide. And her aunt, Reed, who, who is makes so her busy, sick, who makes her sick for something, <laughs> is just so devastated by this that now like she's dying. Oh. So she sends a letter to Jane. She goes, hey, I'm on my deathbed. I need to talk to you. So Jane goes. And on her deathbed, she admits to Jane, she goes, I was mean to you because I was so jealous of how much my late husband loved you. She was like, you know, he was always off on business trips and like didn't really pay attention to our kids. And then you came along and then he's like super nice to you. Maybe you know? because his kids were yeah, fucking because abusive they assholes. Yeah. Like they're spoiled brats. John Reed like, was an ass. I hate him. <laughs> and she apologizes to Jane. It's like, hey, I'm really sorry about that. Uh, it's just a little too late exactly and also like i was listening to the again vanessa zoltan talk about and she was like it's also frustrating because it kind of seems like she's just doing this because she's like oh i'm about to die like that was a bad thing i did so i should probably like apologize so i can get into heaven deathbed apologies are the worst the worst hate them don't apologize to me ever she goes, mm, and I have something else to apologize to you for. <laughs> Uh-oh. She had money and I took it all? She goes, you did have a uh, wealthy uncle who sent uh, a letter asking to adopt you and make you the heir to his fortune, but I told him you died. So now you're not getting that money. That's crazy. <laughs> Isn't that the worst? That's so crazy. Would just find that uncle. And Jane is like, hmm, I, okay, I love you. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgive you. Like, and then it sucks because she's like, I forgive you. I just want you to have a happy exit into the afterlife. And then she's, she's taking like, Helen's advice. Don't hold yes, those grudges. She is. Helen. And she's like trying. And then she like reaches out and then she tries to like grab Aunt Reed's hand. She goes, don't touch me. What is wrong with you? And she Ew. goes, yeah. She's like, Ew. don't be near me when I die. And she's like, okay, fine. Like, Jesus Christ. 
right. Who's like, you know what? My my dream is to go out of this world alone. Yeah. That <laughs> would be the tits. Um, so <laughs> miraculous. Love it. So she dies. Jane leaves her childhood home. And when she returns to Thornfield, you know, everyone there is like so happy to see her again. And she's like, man, I like actually missed this place. I guess this is my home. And even though Mr. Rochester is like basically engaged to Ingrid, he admits to Jane that he has feelings for her. And she admits that she has feelings for him. <gasps> we'll get more into this engagement scene later on. Okay. Uh, but they get engaged. But a few weeks later, the night before the wedding, Jane awakens from a nightmare to find that a strange woman is in her room. She is more beast than woman, and she grabs Jane's bridal veil and tears it in half. Jane is horrified, and the next day she goes to Mr. Rochester, and she's like, this just happened to me. She goes, what the fuck is going on in this house? And he's like, that's probably a dream. She's like, it can't be because the bridal veil is still torn. Like that is concrete proof that some strange woman was in my room last night. Oh my God. He's gaslighting her. And he goes, "Mm, must've been that damn grace pool. She's so weird. Can we fire her? And she goes, I know grace pool. It did not look like her. (laughs) So who was it? Was it the other girl? The wedding day comes. Oh my gosh. And even though Jane has like a few things gnawing at the back of her mind, she is so excited to marry this man that she so deeply loves. Mm. But then in the middle of the ceremony, a man, it's literally that does anybody protest this marriage? Speak now or forever hold your peace. And this guy comes out of nowhere and says, He can't marry you. He's already married to my sister. <laughs> Drama unfolds. All the secrets come out. The strange noises in the attic are not made by Grace Poole. Grace Poole is the person who's been keeping the person who's making the noises up in the attic. Is she a ghoul? This is Bertha Antoinette Mason, the first wife of Edward Rochester. Why'd they have to name her Bertha? This is another thing that bothers me because I think he named her Bertha. Her Ooh. name was Antoinette. Oh, that's a beautiful <laughs> to be clear. Name. It's a, a beautiful name. I mean, it sounds like you could be beheaded at some point. Yeah. But, <laughs> I mean, until then, stunning. Yeah. So the story goes, they got married um, in Jamaica. And she <laughs> and put on the honeymoon 15. <laughs> after their wedding, her mental health began to deteriorate. Oh, and this she is terrible. she became violent. She was drinking constantly. She was frighteningly sexual and apparently unable to speak or go out into proper society. Oh, my God. Same. Mr. Rochester <laughs> insisted. He goes, I was tricked into the marriage. And when we got back from Jamaica, I obviously couldn't let her go into society. Like, what would people think? He goes, so only people in Jamaica knew that we were married. He goes, so I just locked her up in the attic. So for just hiding somebody with mental health issues for 15 years, she has been locked in the attic at Thornfield Hall. Stop. Plot twist, Katie. Grace Poole, who gets blamed for all of her shenanigans, which I guess makes sense because she's supposed to be supervising her, keeping her up in the attic, but Grace Poole likes to drink. (laughs) And sometimes she lets Bertha slip out. (laughs) They play cards. (laughs) It's so fun. Jane is obviously 
and we're going to get way more into births though. People are like, you're not telling the whole story. I'm going, I'm doing a whole section on Bertha. We'll get there. We'll get there. Can you cool calm your, down? Cool your, cool your jets. Cool your shorts. Nobody so, needs you right now. Jane is devastated. She's embarrassed. And, you know, Rochester's begging her to stay. And she's like, I can't do this. So she runs away. She, like, collapses in the woods or something. And this family finds her. This is the Rivers family. So it's two sisters and a brother and they take her in and they care for her and they're so kind. And while talking one night, the two sisters are discussing their father's passing and they're like, yeah, it's so weird because our father died, but he didn't leave any of his children, his inheritance they go, he left it to some cousin that we don't even know with the last name Air. <gasps> me. <laughs> so Hi, Jane realized it's, it's me. me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the benefactor. It's me. <laughs> Jane realizes that the rivers are her cousins and oh, that shit. she is the mysterious beneficiary of John Eyre's substantial estate, which is like a dream anything to your kids <laughs> wouldn't ask <laughs> what okay What's happening okay maybe if i read the book i'd know more about this but i really glazed over this section i did not <laughs> listen to the on air about this guess what so nobody wants to talk about paperwork no. in a book god it's no. not fun for anyone it's not nice so this means that jane is now a very wealthy woman and of course she gives money to her cousins and kind of sets herself up and she's like look at me i'm so kind set for life and I'm a nice person and at some point too like her male cousin I think this is before they know I didn't again this part of the story I'm really oh she's macking on river boy no he's macking on her (laughs) he proposes to her because he says and I think this is the worst compliment anyone could give you he goes I am a missionary and he goes and I think you'd make a wonderful missionary's wife oh and she goes "Mm." (laughs) if somebody said that to me I would be like okay so (laughs) Are we going I throw to throw a pickle martini in their face? Are we going to Africa <laughs> or like Asia? Like, where are you taking me on these travels? And when exactly can I leave you for yes. another man? <laughs> so she says no. And he's like, okay, this is a uh, Luke and Leia situation. And then he goes to India and becomes a missionary alone. Okay. But India is a good trip. Yeah, I've been, it's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, I'd go for the trip. Yeah. So not the incest though. No, thank you. (laughs) So all this happens. And then one night she gets this feeling like Mr. Rochester (gasps) is calling to her. And she's like, guys, I got to go back. So she rushes back to Thornfield and finds the estate engulfed in flames. Stop. She discovers that Bertha, the woman in the attic, has set Jane's bed on fire. And she threw herself from the roof of the house and killed herself. The house is destroyed. Mr. Rochester is alive, but badly hurt. He has lost his vision. He is now blind and he has lost one of his hands. Okay, so all right. <laughs> I can't with it. This this is this too, is a wild story, isn't it? This, this is, is way too, more involved than I thought it was going to be. This is too much. I feel as if, I mean, this is obviously why people like it. I just feel like, why can't anything go right for this girl? I know. It's a it's a sh- damn shame. Like, and now the guy she liked is blinded and one handless. Yeah, is this Sleeping Beauty? I know, right? It's crazy. Oh no, that's Rapunzel, whose boy goes blind. Yeah, oh, he does go blind. He falls off that story. tower. 
Oh, Grim, the, a brother's Grim, honestly. That's who wrote this. Yeah, not Charlotte Bronte. Not Charlotte Bronte. No. <laughs> We're, let's give credit to other men for her stories. So he is badly hurt, and Jane is like, I love you. I'm never going to leave you again. And now that he's truly a single man, because he's technically a widower. And now she's wealthy um, as fuck. Exactly. Oh, that you marry. Dumb. That's dumb. And he gets vision back in one of his eyes just in time to see his firstborn son. So that is the general plot of the book. Wait, wait, wait. It's an, we, it's an, it's a Hunger Games ending with like, a, and then we had a baby. Okay. I'm actually, the ending is better than I'm letting on. Okay. Okay. So I'm we will get into on. that. I'll hold my Hold horses. on for that. So that's the general plot of the book. And I think it's easy to see why this book was a huge success. <laughs> there is romance. There's mystery. There's ghosts. There's scandal. Like, there's literally an altar scene call out like this book is wild. And like, I'm not gonna lie. I was reading the romance scene. Like it is exciting. Is like, it steamy? It's not steamy as in like Sarah Mastian, yeah, yeah, but like, yeah. but like I, even in its old Englishy ways, I was getting excited by their conversation. Cause he like kind of teases her a little bit, oh, you know? Cute. And like, I don't know. Like, the banter is the best part the of any the book. Part. How do you write banter? I don't know. Can someone explain that to me? Because I can't even have conversations like that. So how are you no. supposed to write it? Who knows? It's like, you know, that feeling when like, you're at a party and like you're flirting with someone you're like oh my god i'm doing it like <laughs> yes <laughs> it's the best feeling in the world well, it's great because when we interviewed that romance author that like science yes. romance girl and we mm-hmm. were like what is it like to like write these relationships like where do you get the inspiration she's like none of these guys exist yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i was like i see now i see i didn't see before I, I was blind but now i see exactly amazing grace um but yeah but we can totally see why this book was a hit even queen victoria reportedly stayed up until eleven thirty reading this book oh shit and she's got a lot to do yeah and she's, 87 and, and children she's got a lot of sex to have lots of babies lots of sex so i'm sure one of them was born after this book <laughs> um I, <laughs> but there's obviously a lot to unpack here and i think that we need to start with bertha because there are obviously two main female characters in this book, and they are Jane and Bertha. And so Mr. Rochester married Bertha 15 years earlier in Jamaica. And we learn, the text says, she is a Creole woman. He says that when they first met, she seemed normal and everything was good. Then after they were married, her behavior started to change, and he discovered that madness was present in three generations of her family and that her Creole mother was especially crazy and she was a drunkard. So he felt like he was duped into the marriage by her side of the family because they didn't disclose this to him. And he was forced into the marriage already from his side of the family because it financially benefited his brother and father. So I guess the this family had land or something in Jamaica that they wanted. So they arranged this marriage. And so neither of them wanted to be in it, to be clear. So it's ties to the new colonies. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I see. Yes. Um, And when we finally see Bertha, 
She has a, she's described as having a purple bloated face, dark grizzled hair, and she runs around the attic on all fours and is known for biting and stabbing people. Okay. Well, she's been locked up for 15 years, but this is super racist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She is animalistic. She is dangerous. She is unwell. And people have problems with this character for understandable reasons. Number one. She should obviously be getting medical treatment rather than being locked away in an attic. So there's something to be said for the treatment and discussion of mentally ill people. And then, of course, we have the issue of race. Some people say that, no, like when they mean when they say Creole, it means she was just a white woman born in Jamaica, but she is white. But it could also mean that she has mixed ancestry. It's not 100% clear. But from the physical descriptions that they're choosing to make and this linkage being made between her madness and her Creole heritage, which they say was passed through her mother's side, very specific reference, it kind of alludes to the fact that, like, well, her mother was Creole and she is Creole and that is where the madness comes from Mm. is, like, this particular part of her. So linking any potential native heritage to being less human being an animal right which is obviously not okay thankfully an author named jane reese tried to give a voice to bertha mason in 1967 with her book wide saragasso sea it's basically a prequel to jane eyre and it tracks bertha's journey as a young woman named antoinette living in the caribbean to becoming bertha locked away in an attic and just left to rot right but Before then, obviously, we have her in this book where she has no dialogue. We said earlier. With all those people that have dialogue, she has none? There are like 68 people that get to have direct dialogue in this book, and she is not one of them. I mean, if I was locked in an attic for 15 years, I would act similar to what they're describing. I'd be infuriated, crazy, Mm -hmm. stir crazy. Yeah. And also, one of the things I kind of thought about was like, does she speak English? Is right. she a person from Jamaica who like doesn't speak English so no one can understand her, which would also make you feel fucking insane? Yeah. You know? So is that another? Th- I don't know. There's a lot going on here, but she has no dialogue. She has no agency. She is other in every way that she possibly could be. And she's kind of represented as the evil doppelganger or maybe even the foil of Jane. Right. They are opposites of each other. And even though they have both dealt with hardships in their life, you know, and like gone through some serious shit, you know, Jane is seen as the good Christian woman. She has learned to control herself despite the hard things that she's been through. And Bertha has not. So it's almost like Jane may have turned into Bertha if it hadn't been for like Helen Burns or Ms. Temple, um, which is is interesting because Jane also doesn't try and pretend like she's perfect. In one of my favorite quotes, she says, I am not an angel and I will not be one till I die. I will be myself. Mr. Rochester, you must neither expect nor exact anything celestial of me for you will not get it any more than I shall get it of you, which I do not at all anticipate. And maybe that's the problem from the get go. Rochester thought that his first wife was going to be this perfect little submissive person because that's what he was trained to, to believe, expect right. in a marriage. That's what he thought that he was owed. And 
that's not what he got. And maybe that's another refreshing thing. It's like Jane is like, oh, no, I'm not perfect. I am not going to be like this perfect wife because like I am a human, you know, it is refreshing, but it also is like a reflection on like how people like Charlotte Bronte and other women of that era were like trying to branch out Mm -hmm. and not be perfect. And they're like, I'm not perfect, even though I am this Victorian white woman. Mm -hmm. However, there are people who are even worse even than, worse me. than me. <laughs> even worse than me. See, I'm not perfect and it's cute and spunky. Exactly. She's not perfect and she's crazy and needs to be locked up. Right. And it's like, why? It's almost like I could be much worse. I could be Bertha. Right. And there was even a book written in 1979 exploring this very topic. It's called The Mad Woman in the Attic. It's by Sandra Gilbert and Susan Gubar. And it's a feminist exploration of books written by women of this era and exploring like how they had to lean into this patriarchal idea that women were either angels or monsters. They were either Janes or Berthas. And it was like, why do we have to put other women down in order to make our heroines seem likable and believable Mm -hmm. and good and like, why do we have to tear another woman down in order to accentuate our protagonist's good Christian woman qualities? Like, why do we need to do that, you know? And it was, like, all about encouraging women to not separate themselves or other women into these two categories, you know? It's like, don't lock the passionate side of yourself up in the attic. Like, we can be Jane and Bertha all at the same time. Like we don't have to create a monster in order to create, have a heroine. Yeah. It's almost like Charlotte Bronte wanted Jane to be spunky and fresh, but Mm -hmm. like in an endearing way. Yeah. Like, Oh, you're a feminist. That's cute. Yep. You know? And it's like, well, yeah. (laughs) Is it cute? Or yeah. I don't know. That's really troubling to me. Yeah. It's a, like, it's funny that the character with zero lines is the one that, really brings up the like so much conversation yeah. you know and it's also interesting because bertha is like a mirror version of our main character another main character mr rochester mm. bertha is imprisoned for being an abusive drunk who is also said to be sexually promiscuous but those are all things that can be said of rochester For the last 15 years, he has been abusive towards his wife. He has traveled around the world drinking too much and sleeping with many women. In fact, Adele, his young ward, is the daughter of one of his former mistresses. So why is it okay for him to do all of these things and it's not okay for a woman? White male privilege, Katie. Yeah. (laughs) Duh. And it's frustrating because you have these two people who are like entered into the same scenario. They're both in this marriage that they did not want to be in. They were forced into, but that's why it highlights this big imposing difference between Bertha and Rochester. And that is the power difference, which is, I think what Bertha is trying to warn Jane about. Mm. Bertha entered the marriage with zero agency and zero power. And that's why she is stuck in the attic. And it ends up being why it's important that Jane and Rochester's first go at getting married doesn't work out because they are in, there's a severe inequality at this point in their relationship where he's on the top. Yes. So when Jane and Rochester do end up together at the end of the book, 
they are both very different people emotionally and physically in the world. With her inheritance, she no longer has to marry a man for money. Hmm. She has plenty to live on. But it's also interesting because we can't even just say that, like, well, she has money now, that so then they're equal. Rochester, at the end of the book, needs her because he has been, like, physically damaged his body. So it's like this very weird statement to make that in order for a woman to be equal to a man, not only does she have to get her own money, but he must be, like, crippled. Like, <laughs> a wealthy woman is now only equal to a blind one-handed man <laughs> who has captured a woman in his attic yeah, for 15 who has years. severe like, problems that's already. The most, that's Isn't the most traumatic part of that for me is like, yes. I don't care if he's blind or has one hand and you love him. Like, fine, yeah. whatever. He trapped a woman in his attic for, for 15, 15 years. years. In England, no less. Yeah, it's There's not even there. any sun coming through, like, the no. shingles. It's rainy and loud. You can't even sleep during all the rain. Yeah insane that's what i know about england everyone (laughs) (laughs) and you've been twice Um, (laughs) and this is what gets us to another very important section of our analysis which is the feminist analysis so jane does stand up for herself quite frequently and the book begins on the day when she starts to stand up for herself and say, like, no, he hit me. I'm the victim. Like, yeah, this fuck is you, not John okay. Reed. I hate you. And she is independent, which is what draws people to her. And, you know, sometimes when she speaks out, like, you know, with the, the very first scene and in the school, she gets punished, you know, especially when she's young. But as she gets older... Rochester seems to find this an endearing quality about her. You know, she does speak her mind. She doesn't just stay silent about things. You know, maybe she's not the most uh, observant person. Uh, (laughs) There's a woman screaming in the house constantly and you have not asked many questions, but (laughs) red flag, (laughs) big red flag. Jinx. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's interesting. So while he's courting Ms. Ingrid, okay. we discover a lot of his feelings towards Jane. And in one of the scenes, which I did not get to in our summary, because it's too crazy to dive into. I mean, again, on air talked for like an hour about this scene. Mr. Rochester dresses up as an old fortune teller gypsy woman, which is also problematic in so many ways we can't even get into it um because he wants to see if jane likes him but didn't he already do the horse bit he did a horse bit but that's before she kind of met him that was before they met so that wasn't on purpose this is very on purpose he dresses up as an old woman and is like i'm gonna tell your fortune you know come in here honey you know i feel like it's problematic that jane ends up with him just in general (laughs) like this is not okay this is not okay no And so he's talking to her dressed up as this old woman, you know, and which there's a a version of reading this that I like and that he knows that there is a power differential. So like he doesn't want to just pursue her if she's not interested in him because like that would be kind of fucked up, you know, so he wants to to say yes type deal. He wants to know if if he should pursue her, you know, Mm -hmm. which I can appreciate, but. This is not the way to do it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting because in this scene, he's talking to her and he says, 
I can see it in your brow. Your mind says, I can live alone if self-respect and circumstances require me to do so. I need not sell my soul to buy bliss. I have an inward treasure born with me, which I can keep me alive if all extraneous delights would be withheld or offered only at a price I cannot afford to give. Mm -hmm. So this is Rochester telling Jane, I know that you don't need me. You would be perfectly fine on your own, which is an interesting statement for him to make because that's not the normal situation for Victorian couples. Usually it's like, you have no prospects, so you need a man of some kind, you know, like it kind of reminds me of like that first line in Pride and Prejudice where like, you know, a man, like there's a one, the universal truth that a man right. is in want of a wife or whatever. And a woman is in want of a man. A husband or whatever, you know, her, yeah. you know the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know the that one. one famous line that we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Call me Ishmael. That exactly. One. Mm. Um, but it's interesting because he's saying like, I know you don't need me. And I know that just because I'm rich, you're not going to be with me, you know? And we said earlier at the end of the book that he needs to be crippled and she needs to have money to be seen as equal. But I think that's more of on a societal level. It seems like he considers them equal before all that. So when he proposes to her the first time, he does it in kind of a callous way, you know, because she's like, you're engaged to Miss Ingram. And he goes, no, I'm not. And he's like, I want to marry you. So like, will you just fucking marry me already? Like, oh. again, <laughs> a Mr. Darcy situation. Yeah. <laughs> and she goes, do you think I'm an automaton, a machine without feelings? Oh, shit. Do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain and little I am soulless and heartless. Oh my God. Positive self-talk. Uh -huh. Jane. Jesus. You think wrong. I have as much soul as you and full as much heart. I am not talking to you now through the medium of custom conventionalities, nor even of mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit, just as if both had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet equal as we are. And then she says a few lines later, I have spoken my mind and can go anywhere now, which I just love that quote. That is good. But like, have you ever monologued like that to a man? No, no, of course not. I mean, I've screamed. At a man, <laughs> I have <but>. screamed crazy <laughs> ass shit that I, I have never monologued with my head straight on I my wish. shoulders. Are I you wish. kidding? Uh, to which Rochester says, you're like a frantic bird who's <gasps> like going to die from its own desperation. She sounded so sane. I know. And she says, I am no bird and no net ensnares me. I am a free human being with an independent will, which I will now exert to leave you. <laughs> I know that quote. I am no bird and no net I ensnares me. That. That's, that's on like t-shirts. Yeah. That's a famous quote. I, yeah. I didn't know it was from this, which I just love that she, I love that comeback of like, yeah, I am not like, and now I'm going to fly away, What's baby boy. <laughs> and it's interesting because like, she doesn't know about Bertha yet in this scene so oh. like she's like i'm not your prisoner so like i can leave you whenever i want because i have a will of my own oh yeah so that's an interesting thing to think about mm. so or shadow they go back and forth for a bit and he's basically like i love you and she says no you don't <laughs> which i love and then he finally breaks it down for her and he says my bride is here because my equal is here <gasps> and my likeness jane will you marry me she still doesn't answer him. And he says, have you no faith in me? And she goes, not a wit. Yes. <laughs> <I love. laughs> 
I I am so past when men are like, I finally found my equal. It's like we were all your we're fucking equal. equal. We were always your equal. It's not just like my little bit of wit. You just like were not caring, you dipshit. Yeah. And it's interesting because like, you know, she couldn't she shouldn't trust him yet no. at this point because no. another huge inequality between them in the beginning. Like, so not only is he her boss, not only is he older, but he has a huge piece of information that he is keeping from her, which is not only unfair to Jane and to Bertha, but we find out that this could have, this was a major crime. Like if they had gone through with the marriage, he would have been sent to jail for bigamy. She would have been sent to jail for bigamy. Like this could have had real legal implications. So like that is also a level of fucking inequality. And it's something that should be commented on because women are also unequal at this time in the information that they are given because her not knowing about this could have had an, could have had actual grave legal consequences. She could have been arrested. And it's not like somebody's coming to bail her out. No. John Reed was gambling all their shit away. I know. Crazy. <laughs> I mean, there are layers upon layers of inequality. And I think that we see so many of them exposed in this book. And the book is also written in, I believe, a very feminist way. So the premise of the novel is that Jane herself is reflecting back on her life. And sometimes she even writes directly to her reader. She only does it a couple times in the book. But you can almost, like, she'll be like, oh, reader. Like, <laughs> and then she'll say something. It's almost like she's looking into the camera like she's, she's on the office. Breaking the fourth wall. Yes. <laughs> but what it does is it gives a female narrator this power to be in command of her own story and to comment on her own story, you know, like, so at the end of the book, she starts off the very final chapter by saying, reader, I married him, which is almost like pretty crazy, isn't it? (laughs) Like, that's how I take it. I'm a nut. (laughs) And it's also saying in a very direct way that she made the decision on her own accord. And I like that because the way that supposedly Jane Eyre has written her own story is she's saying, I presented you with all the facts. I told you that he lied to me. I told you that he was a jerk sometimes. I gave you all the information and now I'm telling you that I still married him because I love him. You know, the book didn't say we were wed, they married, he married her. She says, I married him. A power of choice that many young women reading this book when it came out truly did not have. And I am going to end my Jane Eyre story there. There are countless avenues to analyze this book from. I mean, again, you need not look further than Vanessa Zoltan. Yeah, right. That podcast is hours and hours and hours, and I just couldn't get into every... And her book is amazing. Yeah, it's so good. So, like, I just... I don't know. I just want to end here because that's the thing about Jane. She believes that she is inconsequential, and yet here we are hundreds of years later talking about her and analyzing every word she says and every move she makes. But I am choosing to end on this note of marriage and choice because, dear listener, that's how Charlotte would have done it. Uh, (laughs) A 
amazing. <laughs> and I mean, go back and listen to the Bronte sisters episode yes. because we learned so much. Like all, there were like five Bronte sisters. Three of them are famous and they all like died before they were 40. All yeah. of them. Amazing yeah. how much they accomplished. Yeah. It's also funny because the they, they had a brother who was like not as well accomplished yeah. and... <laughs> I saw a portrait that he did while I was doing my research of like the Bronte sisters and he kind of put himself in as like a little ghost. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bertha. Hey. <laughs> um, and I'm then, uh, Also, okay, pause on this. Uh-huh. The Rory Gilmore's dorm room has a, a Charlotte picture of Charlotte Bronte on the wall. <laughs> and it always annoys me because I'm like, listen, the way Rory's acting, I don't think she has ever read Jane Eyre. Like, I know they like to pretend that she is so educated, yeah. but she's acting like a fool. I think she is educated. I don't think that she is very street smart. So what is it? Like, I think she's ignorant. She's yes. educated, but ignorant on many of things. I just, <laughs> she might be the worst <laughs> fictional. She, here's the thing. She be, she's an anti-hero. She be, no, I am not even going to give her that credit. Oh, she, <laughs> she, I think Lorelai's much more of an anti-hero than okay. Rory is. Agree, agree, agree. We need to do a whole episode. We have not yes, done the do. Gilmore Girls. This Maybe is, that's what we'll do for Thanksgiving. Okay. We'll just talk about the Gilmore Girls okay. because we need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's going to be a really long episode. We <laughs> should, oh my gosh, we should watch the deep fried Korean Thanksgiving oh and just God. like talk about it. Okay. So anyways. All right. We'll talk about thank how you. much I'm obsessed with Logan. Okay, it's fine. We'll be right back. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> For part two, we were like FaceTiming <laughs> with some babies in the kitchen. Babies in the kitchen. It was so fun the making cocktails. schoolers in the kitchen. When you've got middle schoolers <laughs> just hanging around when you're trying to live your life. Nothing could be worse. No, honestly, it's my entire career and I chose this. I'm so sorry. I know. I think about it on I a mean, regular basis. Like I could have worn business suits and been AOC, but instead. <laughs> you know what's really upsetting too is mm. like. I've been getting Facebook flashbacks from my like middle school, early high school years, and it's upsetting. Well, listen, I wasn't on then. <laughs> I think Facebook came into existence when I was in college. Mm, yeah. So, like, all my flashbacks are at the very least like past puberty. That's nice. It is Minor very peak nice. puberty, and <laughs> which is terrible. Like I, you know, and now of course, like I'm getting all the Instagram accounts that are like, you know, remember this? And like, one of them was like, remember a way over editing your like Facebook photos? Oh my gosh. Where your face looks so dumb. People still do that shit. Katie, there was one that I came across recently where <laughs> I put me and two of my friends in mermaids, like it was like a like a whole website you could do. You put your face on mermaids' bodies, Perfect. and it's like sweet summertime. Perfect. So cringe. Recently, you came over that not summertime. Yes. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> um, do you want to know what you're drinking? Yes, I do. It For looks part sunny two. and delightful. This is called Double O Atkins. <laughs> And it is vanilla vodka, mm. orange juice, orange mm. bitters, mm. and then poured over ice, shaken up and poured over ice. But before that, you rim the glass with sugar and lemon zest. I love it. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. It's just a screwdriver. Yeah. Mm. I love it. 
So I good. love the vanilla vodka with it. Uh-huh. Mm, delightful. Yeah, Casey's parents don't drink, but we asked them one time about it. <laughs> this time he goes, I did have one drink once. It was mm, something. Oh, gosh. What was it? Orange juice and vodka. <laughs> yup. That's the one drink Miss Debbie has had in her whole entire life. Well, other than that, she's a nice tea lady. Never went wrong. Yeah. Didn't go wrong with that. <laughs> Double O Atkins. Okay. Oh, all right. What do you know about Vera? I know that she is like the person who like put all the female spies together. She's basically the Charlie of Charlie's Angels. Yeah. Is how I imagine her. Mm-hmm. I'm so happy you said that. <laughs> You'll see why at that. Okay. But yeah, but that's all I know. I just feel like every time we talked about a female spy, it was like in Vera Adkins, like, yeah, put it together. Like she really, we've done so many episodes about female spies during world war two. I mean, and people like Nancy Wake, people like Virginia Hall. We've done so, so many more oh. in the, op, um, court. What was her? Oh. And she was like a really famous one too. Con, and yet yes, con, yeah. yes. And there's even more. We have a long list that yes. people have asked us for, but because we've said Vera Atkins' name so much on this podcast, <laughs> we had to get like, her out of the way. I have to do this. And her story is not insanely long either, okay. which is surprising because all those other women were very yeah. long. Okay. Vera May Rosenberg was born in the Kingdom of Romania on June 15th, 1908. Her dad was Max Rosenberg, and he was a German-Jewish man, and her mom was Zephra Hilda, and she was a British-Jewish woman. Some sources say that she had, like, two brothers. Some sources say that she was an only child. But what we need to get about her childhood is we don't know a lot about it. One podcast I was listening to is called Badass Jews, and they focused a lot on her parents. I'm not going to do that in this episode, but mm-hmm. they, her parents met in South Africa. Her mom had been displaced because of the pogroms, which happened during World War One-ish mm-hmm. in Russia, and her dad was there for some other reason, but just... It's generational trauma of her family kept getting displaced of where they needed to live. And it's just over and over again that happened in her life. So, again, not much is known about her childhood, which is very, very interesting because every person we talk about from this era who had run-ins with Vera Atkins had, like, 12 to 13-page stories. Mm -hmm. And she's got, like, a very short, relatively, story. Um. One thing we do know, though, is that she had a very luxurious upbringing. She lived in Bucharest and um, had this expansive estate in what is now modern-day Ukraine. Like, her dad was a pretty successful businessman in the lumber industry. She attended school and university in Paris. She studied modern languages. She, Her dad really wanted her to be useful. He, like, knew that... Um, anti-Semitism would work against her. So he really wanted her to have some things in her bag and being multilingual was one of them. That is so interesting. Yeah. And like something that so many people don't have to think about. Right. Such forethought to be like, you need to be useful because you are going to be a Jewish woman. Oh my gosh. That's so upsetting. And like in the climate, like between world war one and world war two, which is like terrifying in Europe. Yeah. So she's out. At the University of Paris, she's obviously from Romania. She's learning French. She's learning English. She's learning German. I'm sure she speaks some Russian because she's from Ukraine. So, or Romania, which is modern day Ukraine. Um, So, 
She's going to do all that ver- versatile stuff. But her mom is also like, you can't just be versatile because that's off-putting. You also need to go to finishing school. So she also goes to finishing school in Switzerland so that she can get her manners oh in my check. God. So she is like checking all the boxes. Life abroad is just filled with work and play for her. She's mastering all these languages. She's enjoying skiing in the Swiss Alps. She's going hunting with her classmates. She is entertaining suitors and proposals that she ultimately turns down because marriage is just not a priority for Vera. It's not on her playbook. So in 1933, after doing all this cool stuff, She's like, I'm going to go to London and I'm going to train at the secretarial college. She's going to learn how to be a secretary, even though she's like beyond that. Not that being a secretary is easy work. It's important and not easy, but she should be like a translator for like some government. While there, um, she changes her last name from Rosenberg to Atkins. Hmm. Atkins is her mother's maiden name and Rosenberg sounds too Jewish. And it's 1933, yeah. and she's like, I just need to shed this name. A lot of people. Actually, it was interesting. I was listening to an interview with Ben Schwartz, mm-hmm. who parks and rec, mm-hmm. like Sonic the Hedgehog. And he was like, yeah, I had this really Brooklyn uncom- Nine-Nine. <laughs> mm-hmm. And he was like, I had this really uncomfortable conversation one time with this woman who was like, oh, yeah. She goes, you know, I had to change my name because it sounded too Jewish. And he goes, oh, well, it wasn't. She goes, Schwartz. And he goes, that's my that's last my last name. <laughs> and she didn't know because he was still oh, no. And she was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry I said that out loud in your presence. Because yeah. <laughs> it's like so weird, but like a lot of people do it and still do it. I think that's yeah. another thing is like uh-huh. people are still doing this, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's what um the Sheens, Martin Sheen, yeah. like Emilio Estevez is their last name. Yeah. Like that it was too Latina, you know, like too Hispanic to like keep that as a last name. Yeah. Well, it's sad. And it's sad too, especially cuz obviously like all this Kanye West news and everything. So it's like it's frustrating to me that like Jewish people still don't feel safe. No. <laughs> you know, they no. like never will you know anti-semitism is our biggest racial so rampant in the world yeah because it's It's so accepted yes oh god absolutely so So anyways so she's changing her last name Mm -hmm. um again this is a survival strategy her dad is this wealthy businessman like we said but his business goes bankrupt in 1932 i'm not sure if it's because it was tied to a jewish man but it definitely happens and then he dies the year later so this is really bad for him so vera comes home to romania to live with her mom to like help her out and while she's living with her mom i think she's like a translator for an oil company in romania they do eventually emigrate like her and her mom permanently to Great Britain in 1937 when like things are going to shit Mm -hmm. in Eastern Mm -hmm. Europe. Because remember, Russia sided with Germany at first. That's something that's important to remember. They switched Mm -hmm. sides during the war. Um, So she's a translator for this oil company. Her and her mom are trying to move. But because she was working with an oil company, she's talking to international people. Mm -hmm. So she catches the eye while she's doing this of a lot of, British secret service people. She is connected to men in Paris and Romania and England, and she meets people in the movement against the Nazis. One is the anti-German ambassador Friedrich Schullenberg, who 
later gets executed for attempting a plot on Hitler's life. So, like, this is a big dog. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And she also um, is in connection with this young British pilot named Dick Keaton Creamer who dies in battle in 1941. So, like, the people that she's in connection with are really against Hitler early on, mm-hmm. not, like, later on, like, America being like, oh, we'll tag along <laughs> yeah. after Japan attacks us. She's, like, early in the fight against Nazism. Wow. So, needless to say, her training in many languages made her skilled. Her connection with anti-German men make her interesting, and her training as a secretary makes her a female necessity. So she has covered all the bases. So she becomes part of the SOE in 1941. SOE, as we've talked about before on the show, (laughs) stands for Special Operations Executive, and it was set up by Winston Churchill during World War II as a spy network to do espionage and reconnaissance throughout Europe. Now, Vera starts as a secretary, but works tirelessly, rises through the ranks to become... um, in the intelligence office, like working in the intelligence office, but then eventually after working even harder, she becomes the principal assistant to the SOE director. So she is the right-hand assistant to Colonel Buckmaster, who is in charge of the French SOE. And as we know, France is like number one occupied region Mm -hmm. that the SOE has contact to. So she's assigned to this French sector. And she could also decode all these German messages that nobody else could decode because she can speak all these languages. And her job is simple. Recruit and deploy British agents to France. Okay. That's her job. Mm -hmm. She would interview the candidates in dark, dimly lit hotel rooms, and there would be two chairs, a flickering light bulb, and a table. She's like, if you can't handle this interview, you cannot fucking handle (sighs) France. If they would pass that, then she would talk to them in French a lot and see if they could do common colloquialisms in French. If they could pass that, she would finally sit down with them and have a frank conversation and say, hey, you have a 50-50 chance of survival and your death will not be quick. You will be tortured for information. I'm going to give you a couple days to think about it. And this reminds me of, <laughs> of when Tommy Lee Jones is talking to Will Smith in Men in Black. And he's like, we're going to burn your fingerprints off. You're never going to see these people ever again that you've ever known. Yeah. Like your life will be over as you know it. Oh. And you have to make that decision. Gosh. You know, I think about this a lot because I had a friend in high school who his mom was like a spy. And he goes... I don't know what she does or where she goes. She goes, he goes, I just have no information on my own mother because she's not allowed to tell us anything. So he goes, she just goes away for long periods of time. I don't know where she goes. Remember when Art was an undercover cop and he had to remove the pictures of his family from his house? Guys, this was a family we grew up with. I don't know if you should say his last name. No, no, no. Okay. 
for safety reasons because yeah. we're very important people <laughs> but he VIP. but yeah he was an undercover drug cop and he literally had to take out the photos of himself in his family home like, because i think they be his children ended up becoming friends with, with like their children. A birthday party yeah. so they had to like fake Ugh. that he wasn't a cop like all the time ah because not surprise, the life for me. People I wanna... selling drugs still have birthday parties for their kids. Guys, <laughs> not the life for me. No. I want to tell everyone everything. I get I... drunk and spill the beans. <laughs> you spill your own beans, too. I know. That's the best Mine. part. I only spill my own beans. I don't give a shit about other people's beans. Nobody's beans are as interesting as my beans. I have really fun stories about my own life. <laughs> It's bad. It's terrible. And You'd bad. believe my beans. <laughs> I think these people would. I think anybody listening to this show would believe my beans. <laughs> Let's put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> if you listen to the show, you believe my beans. Okay. Okay. But she's doing all this being kind of crazy. Like you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Like I give you two days to think about it, but she felt for these agents. She learned everything she could about their lives and their backgrounds before sending anybody into Nazi occupied France. She is confronting this job with the highest amount of respect. She wanted to know intimate details about the people she was sending in. She was like an extremely strict mother hen, but so tender and respectful of her agents at the same time when it was their day to be shipped out, she would sit with them and have a cup of tea, and then she would personally escort them to the secret airfield. She, like, never let anybody go off alone. And she said of them, ordinary people sometimes reveal quite unexpected strengths. These people have no, are no doubt about to do an important task of defeating Nazis, even when they know the risk. Like, she's... Like, understanding the role. She herself is not going. Yeah. But she is understanding the role, which is really important because half of the people that she sent were going to die a terrible death. Half. She knew one in two people she is sending off are going to die, and it's going to be torturous. Yeah. Well, and and I think of Noor Eniet Khan mm -hmm. because... One of the things that really struck me about her story, because, like, Vera Atkins recruited her, Mm -hmm. you know, and... uh, she had to make sure she could do it, you know, and she believed that she could do it. And like one of the, so Casey and I went to the spy museum recently. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts was they had a whole section on Noor. And you know how I said in her story that like she had to carry around this suitcase that had all of her equipment in it. Oh yeah. But it was super, super heavy. Mm-hmm. They have the suitcase with the weight in it oh, that it would have been. Up. And you pick, you can pick it's it so up and see and, like, it was so heavy. Yeah. And, like, the fact that she had to carry that around as if it was just, like, had her negligees in it. Right. Like, she had to pretend. Real, you know? And, like, Vera has to... Think about all that. Think about every aspect of, like, can my spy physically pick up the suitcase and carry as if nothing is going on? Yeah, I she mean, is Virginia not letting... Hall has one leg and is limping yeah. over mountains. She is not letting anything slip through the cracks, and I love that about her. Not a thing. Ugh. She would check their clothing. She would check their papers. She would 
teach them little basic French things that they might not know in order to fit in. She briefed everyone on how do you live in Nazi-occupied France? What are the new curfews? Because if you go in and you don't know a new curfew, they're going to be like, where have you been? Where have you been? Where have you been? Why don't you know that we're all supposed to be in at 714 now? (gasps) Like, she is very, very specific. And there's no detail too small for Vera. She apparently would work 18-hour days because she knew that her agents were working 24-hour days. So she was not giving up when they were asleep, when they were in France. She, her heart was in France. So when she sent them off after giving them tea and walking them to the plane, she would apparently yell a quick, loud French expletive to just have them off in the distance. <laughs> she's like, you know, she'd pretty much go and be like, fuck it. I'll yeah. see you now. <laughs> go for it, baby. Which is fun for me. Okay. Her and Buckmaster's branch of the SOE was so successful that it was stifling Nazi operations left and right. Hitler is quoted as saying, when I get to London, I'm not sure who I shall hang first, Churchill or that man Buckmaster. Ooh. And it's because he had Vera <laughs> working. So Vera knew how important her role was. And it was said of her later in life, the burden of stress was on the person seeing them off. And you could see the stress on Vera. That was in her obituary. Over her time during World War II, she trained and sent off 400 agents, including some of the most famous British spies. Of all time, who are famous <laughs> for both making it back yeah. and famous for dying after being interrogated and tortured. After the liberation of France, her SOE department is missing 118 agents. So, even though the war was over, she made it her mission to investigate each and every one of the 118 missing agents and find out how they disappeared. She was haunted by the missing status and said, I cannot just abandon their memory. She wanted to make sure each and every one would be recognized for what they gave for the war. Despite Churchill's request, the SOE was disbanded Mm. and she got a role as a squadron officer in the women's auxiliary air force. And this is where she began her search. She methodically followed leads and interviewed eyewitnesses Mm. all throughout France. And given her depth of knowledge that she learned ahead of time, she knew what these people would do and where they would go and what they would eat. So she figured out how to track them down. And of the 118 missing people, she tracked down the whereabouts of 117 of them. (gasps) Now, they had all been captured and killed by German forces, but she found out where they were killed, how they were killed, some of them tortured, some of them burned to death, some of them kept in prisons until they starved. But she found out so that she could decide how and when to tell the family what happened and how and when to get them honors from the government. Mm -hmm. And she did for Mm. all those people. She made it her goal to seek justice against the German men that captured them on war crimes. And she was a talented interrogator and broke a lot of her captives. And because of those confessions, a lot of what they said was used in the Nuremberg trials. (gasps) The confessions oh my that she got from these German guys Ugh. 
was used in the Nuremberg trials. That's amazing. That's insane. She did eventually return to Britain after spending years tracking these people. She got a desk job as an office manager for the educational exchange program and ended up the director by 1961. She had a very low-key retirement where she traveled and lived in a sea cottage, Seacoast Cottage in England. She never married and never had kids because that was just never a priority for her. Her legacy was praised by France and by Queen Elizabeth II, and she had was given the highest honors by both countries. Mm. She did pass away at the age of 92 in the year 2000 in Britain, mm. but her legacy doesn't end there. <laughs> she trained hundreds of secret agents to fight the Nazis and showed emotion in the very best way through passion, and she recruited, trained, and planned all of this. But her lasting impact is much bigger. In the 1950s, there's a guy named Ian Fleming, and he began publishing a series called James Bond. In his books, he featured a character named M and his secretary, Miss Moneypenny. These characters were heavily inspired by Vera and her boss, Colonel Buckmaster. (gasps) Ian Fleming was a journalist and a British naval intelligence officer during World War II, and he reportedly admired Vera and had adoration for her agents. M has appeared in novels by Ian Fleming and seven consecutive James Bond authors and then 24 films. <gasps> M has been portrayed by four actors in these films, but most recently, M is no longer like Miss Moneypenny is like not the secretary anymore. M is now a woman and M has been portrayed by Judy Dench. <gasps> Judy Dench has been in I believe seven James Bond movies. Oh, no, eight. She's been in eight James Bond movies playing M as Vera Atkins. And because of that 20-year span and her eight movies, she has been in more James Bond films than any James Bond actor (laughs) ever. I love that. So Judi Dench (laughs) as the, quote, Vera Atkins character has been in more James Bond movies than any (sighs) James Bond. That's perfect. And that's Atkins legacy that this woman is sending spies out and she is in control, but also so loving and caring. So like when you said the Charlie's Angels thing, (laughs) that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And as Judy Dench and in all these books as Bucknell, like that's what Vera did. Yeah. And now is portrayed by a woman who's also a dame. Like Mm. Judy Dench is a dame of the British, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's amazing. So, so her great. legacy is James Bond. And that's why her drink is double O Atkins. I love that. Oh, that's her story. What a bomb Perfect. at the end, right? Oh my gosh. I love Bond. that. Oh gosh. And I feel like it's so interesting because obviously we'll get to this, but like one of the first things that Vanessa Zoltan says about Jane Eyre, she's like, we don't have modern rom-coms without Jane Eyre. Mm. And I feel like we don't have modern spy movies without Vera. No. <gasps> you need that person in the background pulling the strings. <gasps> and it's Vera. Okay. So now <laughs> we need to do about horoscopes first. <laughs> Horoscope time. <laughs> All right. Um, so... I obviously Jane Eyre doesn't really have a birthday. Fine. So I decided because we weren't doing this with Charlotte Bronte, we do her birthday. Perfect. <laughs> um, because she drew on a lot of her own experiences to write the books. Right. So she is born on April 21st, which makes her Taurus. And <laughs> her horoscope for today 
is calm down and get organized. <laughs> for real, though. For real. <laughs> Before you spread your ideas to others. <laughs> Taurus, this is especially true when it comes to love and romance. Oh. As soon as this topic comes up, you tense up and erupt inappropriately. <laughs> Ground yourself and find your center of balance, literally and figuratively, before you proceed. Don't worry about getting the upper hand. What you need to do is join hands. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Calm down. I love Calm down. Calm down, everybody. <laughs> get this organized. Is, this is crazy. She's like, yes, I know. I need to do that. Okay, shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah, same. Doesn't everybody? <laughs> doesn't everybody? Okay, so Vera was born June 15th, 1908. So she's a Gemini. Mm. Um, and apparently this date represents vision, imagination, and joy for a living. It says that you possess great talent for creativity and self-expression. You're quick-witted and enthusiastic, skillful and talented to work with with your hands, you like to communicate and do work that requires independent thinking. Yep. That's totally Vera. That's Vera. That's totally Vera. Amazing. Oh, perfect. All right. Well, now when you talk about these two women together in a little segment, we like to call them just the two of us. Okay. Obviously, their childhoods could not have been more different. Right. <laughs> Luxury of Bucharest and just the shithole that Jane was in. But... I think there's something to be said for trauma. Mm. Vera had a different kind. She had generational trauma. Right. Her family was displaced over and over and over again. So she was kind of brought up to be like, just prepare to be displaced. Mm -hmm. And so she was like kind of gearing up for it or her whole life, you know? Right. And that's a different kind of thing. Like Jane, she had personal trauma. <laughs> She, I think, was supposed to be dealt a better hand in life. Mm. And so... She had white girl trauma. <laughs> yeah, she kept getting displaced, but, like, personally, you know? Mm. It's like, we're going to send you to a really nice, wealthy household, but you're going to be treated like shit. Mm. Like, and it's interesting, because at the beginning of the book, the doctor asked, the apothecary, he asks her, he goes, well, would you rather be here and unloved? Or loved with a poor family. And she goes, mm, you're an unloved. She goes, I don't want to be with a poor family. Oh, my God. Like, Jane, damn. Jesus Christ. Like, <laughs> that's like the wrong message. <laughs> my the wrong girl. answer, my girl, baby. My girl. <laughs> um, but <laughs> you want the invisibility cloak. <laughs> but And I think that that's a sign of like, she's going through all these things like very personally, but she's supposed to be having a better life. And like Vera is like. I think experiencing this other type of thing where like her family is like, watch out, be careful. People are out to get you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, and they knew, like, but she's like, but I'm skiing in the Alps. Like, <laughs> like I'm fine. But also I'm being prepared. You know, like Jane was not being prepared for the steps that she was going to take. And Vera was like, all right, I understand from the get-go that, like, people are after me. So, like, I need to be stalwart, you know? Yeah, and I was thinking about throughout the whole story about um, how anti-Semitism and, like, racism in the New World, like, mm -hmm. North and South America and with people who are Creole mm -hmm. is so similar. Like, we have yes. this Eastern World anti-Semitism that is, and not that it doesn't bleed over here. Of course it does. But, like, this anti-Jewish nature mm -hmm. is so very strong in the Eastern Hemisphere the same way that this racist skin tone mm -hmm. is so powerful in, in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. 
Oh my gosh, absolutely. And the thing about poor Bertha and trying to compare her to locking freaking Vera up in an attic, she would have gone crazy. Oh my gosh, she would have gone crazy. Yeah. And, and here's the thing too. It's like because when people are othered in life, in literature, in whatever, because like I don't think that Charlotte Bronte was really thinking like, oh, I'm going to, you know, make a comment on racism. No, <laughs> I think she no. was just speaking from her experience. known experience yeah. of like, yeah, like people from Jamaica are like weird and not okay, you know? <laughs> so I think there is an otherness that Bertha and Vera and, you know, are experiencing mm-hmm. because people don't want to believe that they're because it's easier not to Mm -hmm. it's easier to hate people that you don't understand Mm. it's easier to hate people that are from a different culture who have different mental health needs than you like it's easier to lock them away in an attic like as much money as fucking rochester spent on hiring grace pool to literally keep bertha locked in an attic he could have just like put her in a hospital which obviously is what she like needed. Like, or like let her hang out outside and read a book. Yeah. Like something like there were just a lot more answers other than locking her up. There were a lot more <laughs> other answers than like putting Jewish people in concentration camps and killing them. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are other solutions to your personal problems with a specific type of person mm. that we are not exploring. Um, I I find Vera and Jane so interesting because mm -hmm. Jane is really living Mm -hmm. in the grid of it. Mm -hmm. And Vera is preparing people for the grid of it, which I found funny, like that Vera was not a spy herself. Yeah. She was was in charge of the spies and she was prepared and she could Mm -hmm. decode messages and do languages. And she was very good at her job. Mm -hmm. She was trained for her job, but she was not living in the day to day grind. And Jane was, and that in some senses, each one is harder, right? The the burden of having people die at your hand that Vera was dealing with Mm -hmm. is terrible. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like when a boss has to lay people off in their business. They don't fucking want to do that. But also the day-to-day monotony of what Jane is going through is also terrible. Yeah. These are just different. They're different forms of pain and tragedy. Yeah. Well, and uncertainty. Like there's a point in the, again, the book is so long and detailed that like I can't get into all these nitty gritty details. But like there's at some point where like you realize that like, Jane is about to leave and Rochester is like, okay, well, like, how are you going to get back to your aunt who's on her deathbed? And she's like, I'm just going to go. And he's like, well, here's like 50 pounds. And she's like 50 pounds. She goes, I've never, I've never seen that much money in my life. <laughs> like she opens up her purse. She has like five pence, like, Ugh, you yeah. know? And he's like, wait, what are we paying? And she goes, I haven't been paid yet. And like, so she's been working this whole time, but like there hasn't been a discussion of like, money or compensation or like anything like that so it's interesting to me too how like they are in these worlds but like i think vera knows more what she's owed and like jane doesn't like yeah again vera's preparing people for the world and jane as you said is living in it but also like not doing so hot in no, it because she's struggling she's struggling and like there are things that like <clears throat> Jane and Rochester's relationship is awkward because 
they don't know how to court each other because they are of different social standing. Mm. And Vera could not let that happen to her spies. Right. She's like, if you're going to court someone in France and you're like a poor person from bed, and she goes, like, this is how you have to do it. Like, yeah. You have to be prepared for everything, and Jane is prepared for fucking nothing. <laughs> like, yeah, she does. She hasn't been getting paid for her work, and she hasn't even said anything about it. Like, that's so upsetting. Right. Like, Jane's living in it, but not prepared. Vera is not living it, but so over prepared. Like, so much. <laughs> And I mean, the, but the power dynamic mm-hmm. is similar. Yes. So, like, if you think about the fact that, like, Vera is a secretary to this Colonel Buckmaster, mm-hmm. who's this amazing guy, and I'm not discrediting his work. Yeah. He did amazing things. He mm-hmm. hired her. They worked together. They were wonderful. And she's working with Rochester. But now for both of them, present day, the tables have turned. Yeah. Like, Jane is now the desirable, wealthy um, single woman and Vera is the one that we're like oh you did all this for these spies you are M in James Bond even mm-hmm. though like originally you're Miss Moneypenny now everybody's realizing like oh Miss Moneypenny did all the work and let's make Judy Dench you right it's kind of like at one point at what point do we really start to appreciate what these women are bringing to the table yeah at one point do we start to appreciate it and recognize it and I don't know. I think it's also interesting that they have had lasting impacts on the two types of movies that people fucking love. Spy movies and romance movies. Like, of course. You see so many tropes in the Jane Eyre novel of, you know, modern romances, you know, and like, first off, like the first woman narrative, you know, and like she's telling her own story. Like, that is a very common thing in like, you know, rom-coms you know and the fucking altar scene where someone's like they can't get married you know and the people coming together breaking apart coming back together it's all Jane Eyre Mm -hmm. you know and it's so fascinating and then you have Vera who maybe people didn't really notice as much when she was alive because that was her job to not be as noticed and that's why we don't know a lot about her yeah and yet she has influenced this entire billion billion dollar movie industry like it's fascinating to me the legacy that they have had on film and tv and like we go through our everyday and not really know it you know the cultural consciousness Mm -hmm. that we have currently yeah a lot of it is lent to these women they are pop culture yeah and, like, we don't even know them. Yeah. That's crazy. It's very crazy. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Are you ready to toast? I'm ready. Allie, okay. who would you like to toast this evening? Well, mine's pretty easy. I just want to <laughs> toast real fucking women who inspired fictional badasses and yes. we didn't even know. Yeah. So, cheers. Cheers. Who do you want to toast? I'm going to toast the girls who consider themselves plain and little, but are anything but. <laughs> Cheers. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? I don't know. I've been doing a lot of reading. You know that. <laughs> I, that this whole year has just been me reading. So recently, 
So I'm usually in a fantasy kick, but recently I've been in this like fallen angel kick. Ooh, okay. Which is fine. There's this one series called Fallen, which I think is for more young readers. I don't think the payoff was worth um, the time, the the whole time. But right yeah. now I'm reading this like Four Horses of the Apocalypse series. Oh, interesting. And I'm only on the second one, and like each okay. one is about a different horse of the apocalypse. Oh, um, and like the rider. So okay. they're pretty good. They're yeah. kind of romancy, kind of yeah. new adult fiction. But I don't know. It's it's a different. Uh, take on the fantasy vibe like okay. if you're done with the vampires and the werewolves and the fairies and you need like something a little original like go for the fallen angels <laughs> all right <laughs> here we are with bad guys turning good and soulmates and amazing Perfect. stories yeah exactly okay what are you into i have to recommend this instagram guy i found okay his his instagram handle is christian johnson comedy and the whole premise of his videos is like he's this old man looking through the blinds outside of his house, <laughs> but he splices it in with like videos that people upload of themselves cooking. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> okay. And he goes, oh, okay. So you got the ground beef. He goes, oh, you're just going to put it in the pan like that. Okay. No seasoning whatsoever. Okay. And then she's like, now you're just going to put some cheese. Go, oh, okay. Some cheese. And she goes, and more cheese, more cheese. And he goes, like, <laughs> He comments on the whole video and goes, I think some, I think I'm feeling sick. I think my stomach's bubbling. And like, <laughs> and like, it's just, I can't, it's, I sound so dumb describing it, but like, it's so funny. <laughs> I had to show you some. Listen, games. it makes sense because these video videos like this are fucking funny. They're fucking hysterical. And it's so ridiculous to me because like you have. He is not making people do these videos and then making like people are willingly uploading these videos and being like, this and is a good recipe and he's commenting <laughs> on them. That's fun. I like that. And he's so funny. So please go check it out. Mm. Christian Johnson comedy. You're going to fucking love it. <laughs> well, I hope you guys are having a magical Thanksgiving dinner. I hope it's great. I hope you ate a lot of tryptophan and did all of your thanks and your giving. And if you're from America, just know <laughs> that we all loosened our pants one belt loop this evening. Yes, we did. So we're with you. <laughs> um, but if you're not eating Thanksgiving dinner and you want to stroll on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rate and review, that would be great. We did get, we got an altered review from Mora, which was interesting. <laughs> and we got another review this week. So thank you so much. We Hello. always appreciate it. Love that. Um, and we love you. And if you want to hear about our conversation in Patreon, follow us there for as little as a dollar a month. You can find out what movie props we would take home from any movie. I have a list of like six. Probably. I'm so glad. So <laughs> if you want to get involved in that, Join us on Patreon. Find us. Join <laughs> us. Find us. It's $1 and we're terrible. We're terrible. And sometimes we like cry during the I... We like have, we have serious conversations that we should not ever publish. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, but most of all, we want you to never forget that well-behaved women own jello molds. Yes, they do. And they rarely make history. Goodbye. <laughs>